Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. who care can make it. Um, I am doing a workshop around something semi-related at um, Kula Yoga tomorrow from 4 to 5. Is that right? Do I have that right? Okay. Um, around um, treating equality as a practice that we do in the body uh, that is not just an aspiration but a an actual moment-to-moment practice. So if folks, if anybody's free and wants to, to come to that, um, Christiane has all the details on that. So this is where you... Tell me I'm full of shit, or, um, you know, find the weak spot and, and go at it. Or not, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't think you're full of shit. Um, just to get that out of the way. But I'm stuck on the forgiveness. I'm stuck on forgiveness of self because maybe I'm, I'm not in a good place in this one, but I think there's almost, it almost sounds as if it's a right, not something that one gets to through an act. I mean, I'm not saying that very well. You mean in forgiveness of the self? Right. That you're entitled to it. Right. And yeah. I'm stuck on that. I don't know why, but I, help me. You're stuck on believing it's an entitlement or thinking that it shouldn't be an entitlement? or I have the sense that at least it, 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 my, my obviously incorrect understanding is it seems to be an entitlement, but I keep thinking, but wait a moment, there's, there's, there's something about that that just leaves me stopped. Mm. But it sounds, what you've been able to get me to understand is it's more than just a nice thing to do. There is a point to it, but it's the point. Yeah, I think maybe the best, if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, maybe the way to think about it is the way that we talk sometimes about dealing with um, accountability for privilege. You know, like, so, you know, the, the framework of, like, white guilt right? Like, um, guilt is incapacitating, right? Guilt is crippling. And my feeling guilty about uh, an arrangement I, may, I had no choice in, that I was born into, unjust as it may be, and, and benefit from it as I may, does nobody any good, right? 
So sitting around and flogging myself over that and, you know, really soaking and stewing in that is just as self-indulgent and silly and, and centers me in the narrative as, as anything that comes from uh, white supremacy as a culture or a social practice, right? And I think, and so there's a critical distinction that has to be made between guilt and responsibility. Because guilt is something that's incapacitating. It's something that cripples us and sort of precludes agency and precludes actually uh, intervening in any way that has any meaningful or consequential content. Responsibility is different. I don't have to feel guilty in order to take responsibility. Um, and I can take responsibility for something whether or not I feel guilty about it. Um, and so in self-forgiveness, in being gentle with the self around something, maybe we feel like if we forgive ourselves for something really fucked up and shitty and insidious, that we're going to shirk responsibility for that thing, right? Um, but at the same time, that guilt, as long as we hold on to that, we're foregoing responsibility. We're foregoing actually getting to a place where we can meaningfully act in a way that doesn't put us at the center. Um, if we're acting uh, from a place of, of feeling guilty or not wanting to forgive ourselves or dealing or, or maybe even just papering over and salving our failure to really forgive ourselves or deal with things that we've done, we're not acting from a place that's actually terribly genuine or, or effective, Right? Um, that we're acting, basically we're acting to respond to ourselves and not to deal with the needs of people we may have wronged or a situation we may have created. Uh, we're, we're effectively re responding to ourselves rather than responding to, to the needs or the situation that maybe we're responsible for or that we've contributed to in some way. Um, and I think that that may be the critical distinction in that, in that, um, that particular conflict or that particular situation is really like, getting down with, you know, like for me, when I feel angry, I know that anger is a secondary emotion. So I know that I feel anger when I'm afraid. So immediately when I feel anger, I go beneath that and go, okay, what am I afraid of right now? Like I do a sort of inventory. Like what is it that I'm afraid of right now? And actually dealing with whatever I'm afraid of is far more useful and far more helpful than acting in response to an anger. In moments in which we feel guilty, maybe the question we need to ask ourselves is, what do I need to take responsibility for? <laughs> Rather than sitting here and kind of like stewing in and, you know, like flogging myself over what I did wrong or how I feel guilty, what do I need to take responsibility for? I'm, I'm going to agree with you in various ways. Okay. okay. Uh, I would stress... Reducing stress is not an act of freedom. I think many people think that taking care of yourself is showing that you're free. You're simply reacting to all the damage you've received. So on the one hand, you take damage. On the other one, you repair the damage where I'm free. Right? That's one way to put it. Mm. But what really reminds me uh, is, for, is, for example, what Augusto Boal, uh, he's a Brazilian theater. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of you know it. And what he did in the face of um, dictatorship, I guess, in Brazil was theater. And then he was exiled, and he came to 
North America and Europe, and he said, well, the big difference I see, really, I mean, we all need to be together, we need solidarity, we need to focus action, create a common story and change it. Except what? In South America, the rifles are in front of you. You know, can see your enemy. In North America, they are inside people's heads, because they just respect the rules. I mean, cops don't even have to take their guns out yeah. for people to do exactly what they've been told, not even question. Right? So, um... But he found that working with the body was a way to do that, a way to express stories, whether it's in front of a gun, or whether it's with the guns in your head and preconceptions and whatnot. He felt that theater, as he saw it, was you know, using the body to put out all these emotions, anger, fear, and whatnot, and then step back and see, well, how is this getting to us, right? Mm -hmm. And based on this common story, one can organize action. That's, and, and he ended up doing theater in, in the parliament as well in Brazil, which was quite interesting. Legislative theater, he called it. Uh, it's already that, I guess. He just made it a little more formal. And, um, <coughs> I guess, lastly, your, that quote about um, be kind to each other so you can be strong together or you know, fearsome together. I think points at one of the issues I've seen so in my travels and whatnot, which is it's really hard to work together. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to cartoon things and say it's really hard to work together on the left, and it seems to be really easy on the right. Because <laughs> on the right, it seems to be, it seems to have that some very clear words. One is bullets, one is money. We all understand that. We know how to give each other or hurt each other, you know, on the right. But on the left, it's not too clear how to do that because, you know, talking about what makes us feel good. Um, often it's not seen as particularly magic. Perhaps. Right. I think there's, there's definitely an element of machismo there, I think. Like, I think it's unacknowledged. Um, and, and I think we see it expressed sort of in the sense that, like, our construction of what's happening in any given moment um, there's a, is, is highly gendered. That, like, um, a good deal of caregiving and care work is, is shouldered by non-male identified people. Um, there's a, a really amazing Marxist feminist named uh, Silvia Federici. Some people might be familiar with her. She was part of the Wages for Housework movement. She does a lot, a lot, a lot of really solid thinking um, about um, the value of social reproduction um, and uh, the ways in which it is highly gendered. Uh, like deeply gendered, that, that things that we take for granted and sort of become invisible to us that are critical and foundational to things functioning, whether it's capitalist production or whether it's social movements, that uh, there are all these sorts of things happening beneath the surface, surface that we either don't see or we've been trained to or trained ourselves not to see and not to recognize, and, and that, that's, uh, that that's deeply gendered. Um, and I think that that's true, that like the extent to which we can afford to not care for ourselves and not care for each other. And when I say we, I mean specifically you and I as men, <laughs> is, is because there are other people holding up that work. You know, There are other people carrying out that work, and we've just gotten really good at not seeing it. Um, and yeah, I like the, uh, the reference to Boal, um, because I think like that idea of like doing things in the body as like in and of itself just being an intervention of like actually doing in the body. I had a friend who worked as like a physical therapy assistant 
um, with people who were basically in hospice, effectively like really elderly people, um, who had certain neurological things where people who like, if they got into a certain position, they couldn't get out of it. They just like, their brain just kind of locked up. And part of his job was working with them to figure out once they got into that locked position, slight movements that they could undertake that would unlock it and get them out of it. And I'm totally probably messing that up because this is not my area of expertise at all. Uh, I'm just working off what he described to me like 15 years ago. Um, but I like that idea of how like when we get caught up in something habituated or cyclical or, or something that we're not even aware of or conscious of, just out of as an act of volition moving in a way that is different forcing ourselves to act in a different way disrupts that that, that reminds me of a particular moment when I think um, emotion and wisdom can get together is that moment in meditation one comes back to what one has chosen to focus on how do you get back to that you can be hard with that you can be vengeful you can be regretful you can be doubtful and I think if one is not aware of how one comes back to oneself, um, one probably will slip into, you know, in a particular other way, as opposed to just being freely observed. Yeah. So the moment of coming back to something, I think for me at least, it's a it's a moment of um, of friendship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, there can be a need for all kinds of emotions to, to deal with, but uh, that's a moment of dealing with. Well, and friend, friendship's a beautiful, beautiful example. Um, there's a whole really fabulous book about um, how friendship constitutes an intervention against neoliberalism. In that, like, you know, I come out of the anarchist tradition, and like, you know, plenty <coughs> of people like to say, like, oh yeah, it sounds great on paper, but it could never work in practice. And it's just like, motherfucker, it works in practice all the time. <laughs> Because the fact that you have relationships with people in which you are not dominating them, in which investment and consumption are not factors, like friendship could not function if not but for the fact that we're really good at operating without dominating each other. And we're really good at interacting in ways that are not economized. And like we do this all the time. And the extent to which we begin to apply those things that we're already habituated at in friendship to other spheres of our lives in a deliberate way. Is Some great work on that, on how friendship works. Collectivities manage resources. Yeah. In all kinds yeah, of yeah, sure. I mean, you get all the way back to like Kropotkin and mutual aid and evolution and all that stuff, right? But even just in like, and we think like, wow, we're, we're just not good enough to pull this off. Like we do this day in and day out. Like we know how to do this. We're just not giving ourselves credit for it. Like we do this all the time. Yeah. Um, I want to say that I like everything that you said, but particularly that the, you were speaking in the beginning a little bit about compassion fatigue, and I spent a bit of time in the healthcare industry, and there's such a culture of machismo and heroism within healthcare, and there's mm. a lot of discussion around what is required to avert compassion fatigue, and there's so much responsibility placed on individual self-care that really avoids blaming the institutional structures that right. people are within healthcare. Um, so thank you for naming that. But I also, as you were talking, was just thinking about um, Joanna Macy's work with the re- about the work that reconnects and how what you were speaking about really um, echoes some of those ideas that she had around how. And I, the, the thing that she talked about, I did a workshop eight years ago, I'm not an expert by any means, but 
the thing that really stuck with me out of the workshop was that she was talking about how um, disconnected we can get from ourselves when we become rigid or um, tight within the kind of within like um, activist kind of movements or whatever. And she was talking about the necessity of making space to reconnect with the body, but particularly she talked about the necessity of making space to breathe within mm -hmm. the work that we do so that we can move past the things that make us brittle to get back to the kind of wellspring of feeling that brings us into the work in the first place in order to keep it fresh and keep it moving, which is, you know, all about also avoiding burning up by inside and keeping alive that connection with our own humanity and yeah. what you're talking about that feeds into the larger movements. And, and sometimes that's not just like, you know, like rainbow bright stuff. Like sometimes it's kind of dark, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. like, I think a big part of, and somebody could write a whole dissertation on this, but a big part of like activist culture is not letting ourselves feel defeated, not letting ourselves acknowledge that we've failed, and not letting ourselves grieve that. And like, if you think about like, well, what does that prevent us from doing? Like, whatever desperate sort of grabbing for every branch on the way down sort of stuff we do to avoid grieving failure or grieving disappointment or grieving whatever, like, what is that preventing us from doing, right? And, like, maybe a corollary to this is, like, like we understand, like, addicts have to hit rock bottom before they can actually get to a place of meaningful agency, right? Like, if we don't ever let ourselves acknowledge that we can fail and it won't annihilate us, that, like, we can grieve that we're disappointed or we feel limited or we're afraid or whatever, if we can learn to be with those things in a way that doesn't come at the stake of being terrified that it will just obliterate us, like, there's a whole lot of agency that comes from that from really getting down with and becoming intimate with that, like com becoming intimate with like, holy shit, like what am I really afraid of right now? Like, or, you know, what does it mean that this might fail or that we have failed? Um, and what stories am I telling myself about what it means that I've failed or, or whatever? Like if we don't ever let ourselves get to those places, we're basically depriving ourselves of the opportunity to like exact meaningful agency. And, um, you know, there's a way in which you can say, like, oh, we'll, we'll deal with this in an institutional, structural way, right, and take it off of the individual. But I think, like, we also, we need to hold each other responsible for letting ourselves, like, I don't want to say, like, hit rock bottom, because that sounds really dismal. But, like, letting ourselves, like, no, like, yeah, I just got my ass kicked. Like, you know, and, like, and this is what that feels like. And, and maybe what it feels like isn't nearly as terrifying as everything I had built it up to be in my mind. And maybe it doesn't need to be incapacitating. It makes me think of the Brenda Glassman's work around bearing witness and how he talks about that it's only from the place of really being intimate with suffering that loving action arises. And I don't always necessarily know that from experience, but you know, I can hear the resonance and the story of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what comes to mind when you're speaking of this is um, being just post um, Veterans Day is. Um, like, I have a really hard time with, I've never, when I was even younger, before I was um, radicalized, the concept of war and the fighting, and, and obviously it's a much bigger thing than that, but, so for soldiers um, being in this position, I was wondering if you could reflect on the concept of 
forgiving themselves for having got involved coming home, the grieving, reintegrating, um, detachment, and I don't know, whatever they must be experiencing, being let down, and no services, and where, how do they... Like, yeah, I mean, so let me preface what I'm about to say. Um, the fact that, like, I, as anybody who who was here when I spoke last year knows, I, I grew up around the U.S. military community. My mom, my mom worked for the Department of Defense pretty much her whole career, and I, I, um, I grew up went went to school with Navy brats and stuff, and um, and developed as a teenager because you know I was a teenager and not terribly emotionally or intellectually sophisticated. Developed a, a pretty like just unremitting and unrelenting hatred of the military. Like to the point of just like, dude, like whatever fucking happens to you, cool with me. Like the fewer of you there are, the better. Like really kind of in this like, you know, kind of traumatized way, I think. Like really coming from a place of trauma of having grown up in that environment. Um, right. And it wasn't, and, and you know, and I, I kind of kept quiet about that because I knew it wasn't like okay to say that shit out loud. Um, and so it wasn't until um, Iraq Vets Against the War started doing work and I started hearing them give testimonials um, and talk about their work that I was just like, oh, fuck, I really got to deal with like my inability to really process the potential for redemption and, um, and, and, and the ways in which that's making me a person who can't acknowledge other people's suffering and other people's... <laughs> Damage and also like to not over individualize uh, the negative consequences of militarism, right? To not overly put it on the individual soldier, like right. you piece of shit, you know, like that. That actually, you know, there's something much more complicated and much bigger happening, right? Um, and I mean, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, and I'm certainly not a therapist, um, so I can't speak in any detail to you know what veterans need. Um, what I can say is this. Um, more U.S. soldiers, anyway, die by their own hand at this point than die in combat. Which ought to be instructive to us in a lot of ways. Um, the first is quite obvious. That whatever it is we're making people do in this enterprise is so unspeakably god-awful that it just like fries the system to the point that a person can't go on living with themselves after that. Mm. Right? Like that just ought to be like a massive red flag. That like whatever we, whatever good anybody imagines could come from military action the people that are produced by that even on the winning side, the winning side, um, are not a foundation for a healthy society. Right? So we can think about it in those terms, right? In the, the society that exists, right? We can also think about that in conversations with people who, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to impose a sort of pacifist sort of position, but people within social movements who have a fetish for armed struggle and armed resistance... I'll go out on a limb and say I think that they are wildly out of touch with what it means to actually be engaged in armed resistance. Mm 
I think they are wildly out of touch with uh, what sorts of outcomes that produces on a macro level and also what it means. I think there's a huge cognitive gap. Like if we staged an anti-war march tomorrow and 50 people showed up with weapons ready to use them, the vast majority of the people at that march would shit themselves in terror. Like, I mean, we can talk about how, like, bravado and how badass we're going to be and whatever, but in fact, there's a big cognitive gap between talking that talk and what actually being in that moment and, 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 and being faced with um, mortal sort of outcomes. And, and that's evidenced by the fact that people who have enormous training to desensitize themselves to the effects of violence can't handle it. <laughs> Like, they come back, and they're like, I'm done, I'm out of here. Like, that's it. And um, if people far better trained, I don't say better in a value sense, just strictly in a, like, the volume of training these people have had to desensitize themselves to the effects of violence, on top of whatever racist dehumanizing socialization they're put through in order to dehumanize the people that they're training weapons on, if they can't handle that, we can't handle that. We shouldn't be doing it to each other. Like, we shouldn't even be considering that as an option. If the only possible viable strategy for overthrowing X, Y, or Z institution is one that turns us into that, it's insane to suggest that that's even part of the conversation, right? And I think that when we indulge that fetish and indulge that as a, a notion of agency, I think we actually insult the people who are forced to engage in armed conflict. I think we insult the experience of those people um, because it's, I mean, it's, it's deeply, deeply, deeply traumatizing. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so like my stepdad and my uncles they were John Goodman's character from The Big Lebowski, <laughs> minus, minus the, like, Orthodox Judaism. Uh, that was just, like, a Coen Brothers spin on that. But, like, if anybody else... I'm 36, and, like, uh, if you grew up in the United States and you're my age, you had somebody in your family who was that guy, right? And that was, that was Vietnam. That was much, much different than, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever. Um, I think we need to be really careful about, like how our political visions and our, our sorts of bravado and badassery or whatever are deeply disrespectful and, and insulting to the experience of people who actually have to engage that way. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, in, uh, in, your, in your interviewing of this, uh, this guy who, who was talking about himself and seeing like his, that his humanity could possibly be kind of wiped out by this experience did he have did he himself have any insight into how he could ground himself and find find a, a like a way for his soul kind of out of yeah out of this mess on the other side of it yeah and I think too like like to be clear this is a young guy um, named Mohammed who is uh, just out of university. So we're talking about somebody in his mid-twenties, right? And I think relative to, like, I think, like, when we talk about, like, oppressed people and people in, you know, facing oppression or fighting tyranny or whatever, there's a sort of romance 
that comes with like, you know, coming from a place of privilege, you don't want to second guess people in that position, right? And and I think sometimes the the the, the correct, I think, impulse to not second guess those people can also kind of tip into romanticizing those people mm-hmm. as though they're not fragile and not flawed and never wrong or like whatever. Um, and I think that there's something really dehumanizing and condescending about that. And so like, I think like one of the things that I've taken away from, you know, like developing these relationships with people is seeing like, it's not just that all this shit swirling around them is real fucked up. It's that like, they're also like flawed, fragile people in the midst of that. Right. And it's a pretty volatile cocktail. Um, so we're talking about somebody who's young and relatively like, you know, as, as any of us were at 25, like not super equipped to deal with like these major things. Right. Um, and what I found interesting about that, con- that particular conversation was before I'd even met him, I had been in Cairo um, right after, uh, I was there for May Day last year. Um, and so this was after Mubarak had fallen, but, um, but before the Brotherhood had even been elected. It was right before they were elected. And um, one of the things that happened in post-Mubarak Egypt was that the Salafis, who are like the like the far fucked up spectrum of Islamism, like super, super repressive, conservative, like whatever, um, far more than the Brotherhood even, um, they effectively tried to engineer um, electoral laws that would exclude anybody secular or left. And they tried to do it in this kind of backdoor way. And so they set up all these stipulations about who could and couldn't be a candidate, but, it, but they couldn't do it by saying, like, well, if you have these politics, you can't. So what they did was they kind of tried to do it in this indirect way. And one of the things they said was, like, if you are married to somebody who holds citizenship in another country, you're disqualified. Because who would be likely to develop liberal or, like, worldly <laughs> ideas except, like, the elite kids who went off to foreign universities and partnered with foreigners and then came back, right? So it was this way of excluding people who had sort of secular sorts of impulses. What happened was it backfired on them because some of their own candidates had wives who held foreign citizenship and their guys got disqualified and they were pissed. And, um, and these were not people who had originally taken over Tahrir. Um, they didn't have like grassroots organizing skills or tactics. So they were like, at the time, the institution that was running the country was the military, uh, was the SCAF. And for people who don't know, by the way, like 30% of Egypt's economy is owned by the generals. Like nobody likes to talk about that in the West, but like when, like in understanding that situation, it's pretty key. Like when you understand like, was it a coup? Was it not a coup? 30 million people took to the streets and created a crisis and people stepped in to protect their investments. That's what happened. And like, that's a pretty key thing to understand. And, and I don't understand why journalists in the West don't like to talk about it, but it's like a major, major feature. Um, so anyway, when uh, the military basically ruled these people can't be candidates, the right-wing dudes went and decided they were going to do tahrir outside the Ministry of Defense because they were protesting the military. The Ministry of Defense is in a neighborhood of Cairo called Abyssia that is very pro-military, very pro-army. Like, you know, you can kind of think of maybe like somewhere in the deep south of the United States kind of thing, you know. Um, and uh, so these guys went and they set up tents and had the stage, this tahrir like sit-in in Abyssia. And this was happening while I was there. 
And what happened was, in the middle of the night, residents of the neighborhood came out and just started killing them. Like, machetes, like, really ugly stuff. In one night, like, 23 people were killed. Um, and the young, liberal, and left revolutionaries who had taken a Tahrir were just like, kind of in like a tight spot, right? Because they were like, well, we don't, these, we don't like these guys, but we also don't really like the idea of a military government killing Egyptians. So we have a choice to make. And ultimately what happened was, to the extent that the left wasn't in hibernation, uh, they decided to take to the streets and say, like, it doesn't matter what the ideology is, the military uh, killing Egyptian citizens is just not acceptable. Like, Egyptian citizens being killed not okay, um, even if, you know, basically rejecting the idea that, like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Like, rejecting that, that bullshit. Um, so there was a precedent there, right? Um, I don't know how widely discussed that precedent was, or to the extent to which Muhammad was aware of or exposed to it, but I think, like, he was, he's an anarchist, he's an Egyptian anarchist, and he... he, he you know, there's a level at which it was just like, dude, you know better. <laughs> you know, and that was like the gist of our conversation. It was just like, dude, like, you and I both know, like, the military's not your friend. And, and they've killed your friends, too. And so, you know, how does that factor into your decision-making process? And I think that it was, like, him saying, like, I'm afraid that I'm losing my humanity was him acknowledging, like, cognitive dissonance. You know, like, basically saying, like, I know that this is really destructive and really corrosive. Um, and, and is going to make me into somebody I don't want to be and that is not good for the things that I claim to aspire to. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think the sort of, like, I don't want to use shitty 1950s vocabulary. Um, I think the sort of skillful uh, aspiration was kind of nascent in that conversation, you know. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe he wanted permission to like tap into that or I, I don't know I mean he certainly wasn't looking at me for approval it's just like dude like I mean I, I've never been gunned down like um but I think that it was nascent and I think that 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 cognitive dissonance you know doesn't really matter the situation we all can kind of tap into that um and I I think ultimately just based on like his social media activity and stuff like yeah I think he has you know kind of come to a place of like it doesn't really matter who the military's guns are trained on, the military shouldn't have guns trained on anybody. Like, like the conversation possibly led to him sort of I, I, aware. I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only person yeah. he had that conversation with. Like, I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that, like, Maybe. me being part of the picture had anything to do with it. Like, I just happened to be, you know, on the phone with him at that time, and, and that was what was said. Um, I'm sure that that was reflected in any number of other interactions he had with people as well. Maybe we should wrap up and okay. then you can yeah, yeah. hang around and chat. Sure. Well, um, <coughs> thank you all for having me again. It's kind of awesome to be in these spaces. Um, uh, it's very rare that uh, I encounter sanghas where people are really, really engaged in and quite critical. So um, it's always humbling to be in these spaces <coughs> and, and meet people and have these conversations. It's, it's a real... Uh, rare treat. Thank you. Maybe we can just finish chanting. Okay. <coughs>
Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. So, Josh, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Um, maybe Josh can like hang out on the couch outside, and you can bombard him. <laughs> um, also. Uh, Every week, everybody is very generous and puts some money in the Donna box. And uh, I hope that you'll consider putting in a little extra money tonight so that we can uh, help Josh pay for his uh, expense for taking the bus here from New York and, uh, and being here for a couple of days. So uh, please consider that. When